Luke 5, beginning at verse 1, it says, As the crowd was pressing in on Yeshua to hear Yahweh's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master Simon replied, We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Yeshua's knees and said, Go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Master. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they took. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. But don't be afraid, Yeshua told Simon. From now on you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. From a very early age in my life, I remember hearing the word disciple. I heard things like, we are the disciples of Christ, the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ. Matthew, do you want to be a disciple? Those are phrases I was accustomed to hearing during my childhood in Sunday school, church, and Christian school that I was blessed to go to. Most of the time, the extent of this was just saying that to be a disciple of Yeshua meant that you believed in Him, you followed Him, and you know that's a good start. It's a good place to begin, but it, but it doesn't really explain what it means to be a disciple of, of Yeshua the Messiah. And what I'd like to do in this lesson today is to teach you something that's very, very simple. It's not complicated. But it's probably something that many people have never heard before because we usually think with an American mindset. That's usually the mindset that we have because we were born in, we grew up in, and we live in the United States of America. So sometimes, even though we don't realize it, we think in an American way and not in a Hebrew way, not in an Israelite way. And really, that's trouble because a lot of times if we do not think in a Hebrew way when we read Scripture, we'll get it wrong. Whether we intend to or not, we often read the Bible and we insert what we're used to into the text of Scripture. And when we do that, we get a surface-level understanding. And you know what? It's okay to have a surface-level understanding, but that doesn't need to be where your understanding stops. That can be where it starts, but it doesn't need to be where it stops. We read surface-level Scripture. Many times we get a misunderstanding of Scripture. And we get what I like to call, when I witness to people, we get the American Jesus as though he's some kind of Uncle Sam figure. And we've Americanized him, and he loves it every time the 4th of July rolls around and he's out there with us shooting the firecrackers and things. And Yeshua was not an American. Uh, he was a Hebrew. 
The way to properly understand a story that took place 2,000 years ago, as did Luke 5, 1 through 11, is to study the culture or the life setting in which the story took place. And with a bit of study, that can be done. And what happens is that the new account, or the account, I should say, is read with new significance because you've now read it in the way that it was intended to be read instead of the way that you wanted it to be read. Now, before we get to Luke 5, I read Luke 5, 1 through 11. I'm going to go through that verse by verse on the new moon service. This is going to be laying a foundation. Before we get to Luke 5, 1 through 11, I want to teach some on the concept of being a disciple of Yeshua. What did that mean, to be Yeshua's disciple? What did that mean in the first century in the land of Israel? And that will help us understand much of what we'll cover in Luke 5 and in many other places that we will come to when we study the gospel of Luke. The first point that I want you to realize is this, is that Yeshua was what we would call a rabbi. Let's prove that and then we'll define it. In John chapter 1, 35 through 38, we read the following. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And when he saw Yeshua passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of Elohim. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Yeshua. When Yeshua turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, the first thing that I'd like to point out here is that Yohanan, the baptizer, John the baptizer, had disciples. He had disciples. He had people that followed him. And we tend to think that there were only disciples of Yeshua, but that's not the case. There were disciples of many different people in the first century. The Hebrew word for disciples is Talmudim. My daughter asked me before the service. She saw the title of the sermon. She said, what does that word mean? Dad, and I explained to her that it was the Hebrew word for disciples. But Talmudim literally means a student or a pupil, somebody who learns. That's what it means. Obviously, then, if they are learning or are a student, then they have a teacher. And in this case, the two disciples of John the Baptizer, their teacher was John. After two of John's disciples heard John say, they heard Yohanan, he said this, Behold the Lamb of Elohim. When they heard that, they left Yohanan and they followed Yeshua. Now this means that they desired to then be the Talmudim or the students of Yeshua, who we know is the Messiah. Now I want you to notice in John chapter 1, 35-38, that these men called Yeshua rabbi. And then we get a meaning of rabbi from the author, John. We're reading out of John 1 in this case. We get the meaning of rabbi here, and he tells us that the meaning is teacher. Uh, the Greek word here is didaskalos, if I'm pronouncing that right, and it means an instructor. That's what that word means when it says rabbi, which means teacher, or maybe your Bible says master or something like that. The Greek is didaskalos, and it means someone who instructs, an instructor. The Greek word behind the word rabbi is actually of Hebrew origin. It is the word rabbi. And it comes from the root word rav, which means great one. Rav in Hebrew means great one or high one, prestigious one. And it was a title of honor and respect, and it had come to be applied to the men in Israel who were the teachers of the law. They would call them rav 
or Ravi, as we say, Rabbi. High one, great one, teacher, a great teacher of the law. Great respect was given to a man who dedicated himself to studying and to teaching the law or the Torah of Yahweh. And Yeshua does not rebuke them in this case for calling him rabbi. Let's move here to John chapter 1, verses 49 through 50. We read this and it says, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, You are the son of Elohim. You are the king of Israel. Yeshua responded to him, Do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Now, here we have another person referring to Yeshua using the title Rabbi. And Yeshua accepts this title being used of him here. And this is because he was a rabbi in Israel. He was a great one. He was a great prestigious teacher of the law within the nation of Israel. Now, we have to grasp that Yeshua was not the only man in Israel at that time that was called rabbi or instructor. He wasn't the only one. There were actually, when you study history, there were actually hundreds of rabbis in the land of Israel in the first century. What were they doing? Well, rabbis were known for moving from place to place, being itinerant. They would move from place to place to teach. They would accept hospitality, That is, they would accept food and shelter and water from those who would give it to them. They would share spiritual things with people, and they would reap natural things from people. They would conduct classes in people's homes, sometimes under trees, sometimes in a village square, or as we saw in the opening text of Luke 5, Yeshua got in a boat, had it put out a little bit into the water, and he used that fisherman's boat for some type of a pulpit to use the uh, echo qualities of uh, the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret as he would preach the people that stood on the shore. The dedicated rabbi did not charge for his teaching. There was no sowing seeds into his ministry or paying him tithes. Uh, one saying of that time, an old saying of that time was this, quote, He who makes profits from the words of Torah has brought about his own destruction. I shared this with Brother Jerry before the service, but this past week I saw a clip from a very popular televangelist by the name of Rod Parsley, who I believe is a false prophet. And he was teaching on the scripture, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And he asked the congregation there, the class there, he said, how many know where that scripture is from? And he said, it's from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. And he said, and right now, the number flashed on the screen, he said, and right now, if you sow a $54.17 seed, this scripture will apply to you. And, you know, people clap and they they shout and they want to sow a $54.17 seed. And I told Brother Jerry, I said, you know, if you keep reading through Isaiah chapter 55, in Isaiah 55 verse 1, which that would be, what, a $55 and one penny seed, if you read 55 and 1, you know what it says? It says, come you who have no money and let him eat. You who have no milk, let him drink. Uh, The first century rabbis did not teach for for money. They did not tell you to sow a $54.17 seed into their ministry. You know why the rabbis taught? They taught others because the rabbi wanted them to understand what he had gained from studying the Torah. He didn't want to keep it to himself. He wanted to share it with other people. Rabbis often knew a trade. Some of them were sandal makers 
or leather workers. Some of them did baking. Some of them, like our master, did carpentry. Why did they have these trades? Why did they know these trades? You know why? To support themselves, to make a living. If they needed some silver, they could get some silver, not by bumming it off of somebody from teaching Torah, but by working for their, for their silver, or what we would call for their money. Once again, this did not negate that they would accept things like food and clothing and, and shelter. As a matter of fact, Yeshua sent his disciples out two by two, and he said if they receive you into a house and they want to give you something to eat, take it because a laborer is worthy of his reward. But they didn't sit there and milk the people for all of the money or the silver that they had. That wasn't the purpose of the rabbi. They would work in cases where they needed silver to support themselves as well as their disciples that followed them. And yes, a rabbi would usually have a few students that traveled around with him wherever he went. These students would listen to their rabbi teach the Torah and they would watch his lifestyle. And their goal was to imitate the life of their rabbi, their teacher. They looked up to their teacher and they desired to believe as he believed and live and practice what he lived and practiced. That was the goal of the personal disciple. You know, there would come a time when the rabbi would release his students, his pupils, his Talmudim, and he would encourage them to go and make students of other people. And the whole goal was to follow the Heavenly Father's instructions or the Torah, gain a greater knowledge of the law, and then live that knowledge out. That was the highest goal that a man could work towards, to gain a greater knowledge of Yahweh's law and to live that knowledge out in his actions. Because how many know actions, as the old saying goes, speaks louder than words? We can say a lot of things with our lips, but do we really back them up with the way that we live? Well, what did it mean to be one of the Talmudim of Rabbi Yeshua? Many scriptures we could go to here. I'm going to go to one in Luke chapter 9, 57 through 58. Luke 9, 57 through 58 says this, as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Yeshua told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, not knowing anything about rabbis and discipleship, this verse would sound a bit funny. Why would someone say they would follow or tag along with Yeshua? However, when we know that this was common in the first century, common in first century Israel, it makes the passage come alive. This was a common thing to do for a man to attach himself to a rabbi and follow him and be a student of this itinerant teacher of the law. The man was telling Yeshua he wanted to be a not just a listener but a personal student of this rabbi. And Yeshua replied by explaining to him that it wasn't easy if you wanted to be my student, my Talmud. He told him that even animals have places that they call home. But Yeshua did not. He traveled from place to place. He was an itinerant teacher of the gospel of the kingdom. And he taught others and he relied upon the hospitality of people in towns that he would travel to. Luke chapter 9, verse 59 through 60 says, Then he said to another, Follow me. Lord, he said, First let me go bury my father. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the, the news of the kingdom of Yahweh. We talked about the kingdom last week. Now here we have Yeshua reaching out to a man to be his student, but the man asks about first burying 
his father. And any way you slice this text, this is a tough saying. It could be that this man's father was not a believer. And Yeshua is saying, look, your dad has died, and now there's nothing that you can do for him. Burying him is a task that can be performed by anybody. But you're called to do something that's more important spiritually. That's one possible way to understand that verse. Some people believe that Yeshua was speaking of the second burial here, where approximately a year after the first burial, the bones of a person were disassembled and placed into a box and then carried to a family tomb. And there's nothing wrong with that. I taught last week about how precious the bones of the people of Israel were to them. And Joseph even made sure that they swore an oath and said, make sure you take my bones from this place when you, when you leave. But along with that practice, it was a belief among some Israelites back then that the decomposition of the flesh between the first and the second burial, which was about a year period, a lot of people back then believed that that atoned for the sins of the dead person. You can find that in the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, it could be that this family held that belief, and Yeshua was speaking out against that unscriptural belief. And so he said, look, you've already buried your father a year ago. Let the dead bury their dead in the second burial. That's a possibility. But what we know for sure is that Yeshua's main point is this. The matters of the spiritual are more important than the matters of the physical. That's the main point. Luke 9, 61 through 62, he says, Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. Once again, what did it mean, I will follow you? It didn't just mean like we say, well, we'll follow him and then we go about and live our life. In the first century, I will follow you meant... I'm going to leave everything and be your personal student, a Talmud of the rabbi. But Yeshua said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of Yahweh. See, when a farmer plowed with an oxen, he had to look ahead in order to see what he was doing. He would plow on a straight row that way, and he would do the job properly. He couldn't be worried about what was behind him. He couldn't keep looking behind him as he plowed with that ox or oxen. And Yeshua is telling this fellow that if you will come and be my personal student, if you want to follow me, then you can't have what you left behind on your mind. That's right. While all of that may be important, what's more important is your relationship spiritually with me as a teacher in Israel and as the son of the Almighty. Uh, Yeshua makes this plain in Luke fourteen twenty six, where he says this, if anyone come to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Here's one of those texts we don't want to read on a surface level because we might think that Yeshua was teaching us to hate our family. That's the surface level reading. We want to go beneath that and dig deeper because... That's not the sense of the word hate, what you would think about hate in this particular text. The word hate here is used in the sense of to love less. And that's one of the ways that the Hebrew and Greek word can be used. It's a comparative hate. Now, let me explain this. Yeshua is saying that the love that a man has to be a personal student of his must go beyond or surpass the love that a man has for his own family and even for his own self. This is personal discipleship. This scripture really can only be read properly and fully 
when you understand personal discipleship in the first century. That's what this verse is about. However, it should let us know what it means to follow in Yeshua's footsteps. Brothers and sisters, we cannot allow our father, mother, wife, husband, children, brother, sister, etc. to steer us away from obedience to Yahweh. Men are to be committed to their families, but Yahweh comes first. Women are to be committed to their families or their husband, but Yahweh comes first. We cannot commit a sin because it appeases a person in our family. We must love our family less than we love Yahweh and Yeshua. If I try to tell my wife that we're going to get together and plan out a bank heist, she's required to disobey me because Yahweh comes first. You say, well, Brother Matthew, shouldn't she submit to you as, as her husband? Yes, but not if I tell her to break Yahweh's law. <laughs> you know, it's just like Brother John and I have talked about, you know, governmental obedience. Uh, we are required to disobey the government when they contradict Yahweh's law. Now, look at Daniel. You know, Daniel, he continued to pray to Yahweh, even when he knew he'd get thrown in the den of lions. The three Hebrews would not bow down to the statue that was so many feet tall when they heard all the musical instruments play. You know, they wouldn't do it. Why? Because Yahweh's obedience by them came before what the ruling government of the land was saying. You know, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, which, by the way, if you've never really dug into First and Second Kings, you need to do that with your family. We recently studied First and Second Kings in our family worship, and let me tell you, it was eye-opening. And I'd read it before, but we slowed down and read it with the children, and it was a blessing. Well, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, the teacher-student relationship was so close that many Talmudim, many disciples, many students were called the sons of the prophets. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 3, 5, 7, and 15. Why were they called the sons of the prophets? Well, it wasn't necessarily because they were the literal physical sons of Elijah or Elisha. Elisha was not the physical son of Eliyah but he was nevertheless known as the son of prophet Eliyah. Why? They were so close in the rabbi-student relationship that he would call Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet, his father. That's how close a student and disciple was. They loved their teacher or the prophet who taught them Yahweh's law. This is what Yeshua means in Luke 14, 26. If you're going to follow me, you've got to love everything else less than you love me. Students of Yeshua took on his yoke. And this is what Yeshua meant when he said the words recorded in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where he says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I heard that verse quoted and I don't think it's totally wrong to quote it like this, but I heard that verse quoted about people that were suffering through a trial, and they quote that verse, Come unto me, and you'll find rest. You're going through a trial. I don't think it's totally wrong to quote it in that way, but that's not the original meaning of that verse in the first century context. See, the meaning is this. When a Talmud or a student, disciple, a learner, placed himself under the teaching of a rabbi, it was said 
that he took upon himself the yoke of the rabbi. The old timers would plow with a team of oxen. Right? One ox would go in each side of the yoke. Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 22, tells us that you're not allowed to plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why? It's an unequal yoking. Now, Paul talks about this in the New Testament in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians. I get them mixed up. But he says, do not be unequally yoked. He sees pulling from Deuteronomy 22 together with unbelievers. Why? Because Paul knows that when you hang out with an unbeliever, like do the things that they do, what will happen? Well, their lifestyle will rub off on you. It's okay to witness to them. It's okay to share the gospel with them. That's fine. And be a light to them. But don't be yoked together with them. Right? Okay. Well, in this case, in Matthew 11, it was as though the student's head was inside one end of the yoke and Yeshua's head was inside the other. And that meant wherever Yeshua went, you went. Because you were yoked with him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take up my yoke wasn't negative as though you had to carry something that was grievous. It was willingly submitting to being dedicated to the rabbi. And it's quite possible that Yeshua was pulling from a then well-known writing in the book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. That's not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. This is a book known in what we call the Apocrypha. Writings during the intertestamental period between Prophet Malachi and John the Baptizer. Sirach or Ecclesiasticus was written. It's a book kind of like Proverbs. And in Sirach chapter 51, 23 through 27, now recognize this was written before Yeshua was born. It says this, Draw near to me, you unlearned, and lodge in the house of study. Why are you slow? And what do you say about these things, your souls being very thirsty? I opened my mouth and said, Buy her wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her yoke and let your soul receive instruction. She is to be found nearby. See with your eyes how with only a little labor I have gotten much rest. What the author here of Sirach is doing is he's personifying wisdom. Much like Solomon did in Proverbs 8. It's a personification of wisdom. He's attributing a human characteristic to something that is not human. It's kind of like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13 when he calls charity or love a her. Sometimes he calls it it or itself, but I think one place he might say charity vaunteth not herself. Or there's one time in there where he calls it a feminine gender. Charity is not a woman in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a personification of charity. He's trying to say you draw close to Lady Wisdom. Put your neck under her yoke and let your soul receive instruction. Now I want you to notice the reference to the yoke, to learning, to instruction, to labor, and even to rest here in this text. And the same is true in another text in Sirach chapter 6, verses 23 through 31. I don't have the whole thing on the screen, but part of it reads like this. Search out and seek wisdom, and she will become known to you. I cannot tell you how many times I have explained scriptures to people. And they have told me, Brother Matthew, I don't understand the Bible. I don't get it. And you know what I tell them? Go back and read it again. And when you're through reading it then, go back and read it again. And when you get through that time, read it again. And then study it. And then meditate about it. And then pray about it. And then ask Yahweh to open up your understanding. Most of the time, brothers and sisters, not all the time, 
Most of the time when you don't understand the text, it's because you've not put in the effort to understand the text. Most of the time. A little bit of study goes a long way, brothers and sisters. The Bereans did not get out their Bible every new moon or every week. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was telling them was so. Search out and seek wisdom and she will become known to you. For at last you will find rest she gives. Her yoke is a golden ornament and her bonds are a cord of blue. What do you think that's talking about? Probably the tassels with the blue thread in them that were commanded because of the sapphire stone that Yahweh's law was written in. Yeshua is telling his students in Matthew 11 this. When you study long and hard with me, it's going to be so fascinating that you won't even realize that you're in a yoke with me. I'm a gentle teacher. I teach the Torah with humility. And you'll find refreshment in my teaching. That's what he's saying in Matthew 11. Come unto me. Learn from me. And I'll make it easy for you. We must make sure that we do not think that Yeshua was contrasting his new teaching or his new law with Yahweh's law. A lot of times people read Matthew 11, 28 through 30 like that. In other words, that Old Testament law was harsh and very grievous. So Yeshua says, if you just keep my laws, you'll find rest. No, that's not what he was saying at all. Not what he was saying at all. Yahweh's law is not burdensome. Deuteronomy 6 says it's for our good when we obey it. Yeshua was a rabbi who taught the law of Yahweh to his personal disciples and to anyone else who wanted to learn from him from town to town. That's the law that he was teaching. What he was saying is, when you listen to my teaching, you'll be refreshed, you'll be enlightened, you'll be encouraged. As a matter of fact, the last part of Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, says this, you will find rest for your souls. That's a direct quotation from Jeremiah 6, 16, in which the rest is found in obeying Yahweh's law. You can check out Jeremiah 6, 16 through 19 in your Bible study time at home. So I've got three points to conclude this lesson. I'm going to wrap things up here. Point number one is this. Yeshua was a first century rabbi in Israel. He was a great one, Rav, Hebrew, a great teacher, but he wasn't the only rabbi in existence. There were many teachers of the Torah in Israel in the first century, and all had Talmudim or students that would learn from their teaching. You know, I need to bring this up because I didn't cover Matthew 23, verse 8 today, and I probably need to in a sermon like this. It's not in my notes. Have you ever heard anybody quote Matthew 23, 8 like this, call no man rabbi? You know, it doesn't say that. This is one of those times where we hear something so much and we've yet to go check it out that we think it says something that it doesn't. Matthew 23 and 8 does not say call no man rabbi. This is what it says. It says, do not be called rabbi. Be ye not called rabbi. Yeshua is dealing with a specific situation with the scribes and Pharisees who like to puff themselves up. When they would go into the synagogue, they would make sure they got the greatest seat, the highest elevated seat in the synagogue. They would make their tassels really, really long and they would make their phylacteries really, really big, and they love to be called rabbi by men. And Yeshua is telling them, do not be called rabbi. He's not saying that there were not rabbis in Israel. He's saying, do not try to lift yourself up. Don't exalt yourself. 
Put yourself down. It's okay if somebody referred to a, a first century teacher in Israel as rabbi, so long as he was not demanding of them that they called him rabbi. It would be like me requiring everybody here to call me bishop. From now on, it's not Brother Matthew, it's Bishop Jansen. Well, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? And I would never do that. And then I wanted a plaque, Brother Jerry, back there in the back, office, Bishop Jansen on the plaque, you know. That would be wrong. And you know what? Matthew 23 and 8 would apply to a lot of pastors or ministers today who get offended when you don't put pastor or bishop or reverend before you say their name. And that's what Yeshua is saying. So what we want to do is when we read a text like Matthew 23 verse 8, we want to interpret it in the context in which it was written. Do not be called rabbi, Pharisees and scribes. You've gotten beside yourself and you think very highly of yourself. The fact is there were rabbis by the hundreds in Israel in the first century. And it was okay to refer to a man with the title rabbi so long as he was not requiring you to do so or attempting to puff himself up in self-pride. And that is a problem that we have in churches today. Pastors get so high and mighty that they don't think they can learn anymore. And I'm here to tell you, you know what? I don't only learn from other men. A lot of times I learn from my children. And they'll say things to me. Little David brought me his Bible. It's not a full-length Bible, but it's got a lot of the accounts of the Scriptures in that Bible. And he had taken a crayon and he had made all these lines through it. And it's a pretty expensive book, you know, like 30, 40 bucks. I was just about to get on to him for doing that. And said, David, you shouldn't write in this Bible. I mean, it was almost simultaneous. I was about to open my mouth and get on to him. And he looked at me. And he said, Dad, I wanted my Bible to look like yours. And then I went and took a second look at his. And Brother Gary, it was perfectly underlined, the words. And when you look at my Bible, when I study, I make notes in my Bible. A lot of times I preach from the notes in my Bible. And... Then Tisha came and we sat down for family worship and then Tisha saw it and she almost got on to him and I said, just hold up just a second I'll talk to you when we're through. We did our family worship and then I explained it to her and it brought tears to my eyes. There again, suffer the little children. David taught me something that day and he was four years old at the time. We can all be taught. The moment that we think that we can't be, do not be called rabbi, do not be called father, do not be called teacher, do not puff yourself up, see. That's what Yeshua is saying. Uh, Point number two. A disciple was a personal student or pupil to the rabbi. He followed the rabbi to learn the Torah from him. He sought to imitate the life of his rabbi. Uh, Talmudim or disciples in the first century were generally personal students to their rabbi, leaving their own life to go and be with a rabbi in hopes of one day becoming a rabbi and having disciples of their own. Their desire was not to be prestigious, although they were in Yahweh's eyes. But that wasn't their desire. Their desire was to draw closer to the Most High. And drawing closer to the Most High meant learning of His ways and being obedient to His laws. Now, doesn't this give us a clear picture of what being Yeshua's disciple means? Professing Christians tend to think they need to believe in Yeshua, and that is true. But believing in Him must include believing what he believed. And it also means doing what he did. 
the word disciples thrown around as though it means you come to church once a week. But disciple literally means you're the student, Yeshua's the teacher, you listen to him teach and you follow his teachings and you watch how he lived and you seek to imitate his lifestyle. That really is the only argument you need to share with people that the law has not been abolished, especially professing Christians. Because if Yeshua, our master, obeyed Yahweh's law and we're called to be his students and imitate what he did, how in the world are we wrong for doing what he did? You'll never go wrong doing anything that Yeshua did. Because he only did what pleased his father and our father. So we seek to imitate his lifestyle, and his lifestyle was not one that disregarded the father's instructions. If we're going to be a disciple or a Talmud, a student, a pupil, then we need to be a personal student or pupil to the rabbi of all rabbis. But that brings me to my third and final point, and that's this. Can we be called disciples of Yeshua today? Well, in one sense of the term, I don't think so. But in another sense, yes. Let me explain. We're certainly not immediate personal disciples of Yeshua. We can't do that today. Only those that lived while he lived could do that. But on the other hand, we can read about him. We can read what he taught. We can read how he lived and seek to imitate him in our own life. Not in the sense of he's our itinerant rabbi, but in the sense of obeying Yahweh the way that Yeshua obeyed Yahweh. Yeshua is the teacher and we're the student. And when we read about his teachings, we need to let him teach us. This is what it means to be a Talmudim or a disciple of Rabbi Yeshua in the first century. I hope that this lesson will help us understand as we continue to go through Luke, we'll start on the new moon, Luke 5, 1 through 11. I know it will help us then. When we come across a text that says they left everything and followed Yeshua, hopefully you'll have a better understanding of what that meant and what it still means today. So let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for your love, you loving us first. Help us, Father Yahweh, remain humble. Help us, Yahweh, Father, study the Scriptures diligently, knowing what they truly teach, not just surface skating or having a surface level understanding, but digging into the text. Let us never feel that we've arrived at the perfect understanding. Let us never, Father Yahweh, feel that we cannot learn anything else. But I pray, Father Yahweh, that we would be humble and teachable. And Father, most of all, that when we read the Scriptures and we read about Rabbi Yeshua the Messiah, the Great One, the Great Teacher, that we would not just believe in Him, not just have faith in Yeshua, but have the faith of Yeshua the same faith that he had. Let that be true, Father Yahweh. Open hearts and minds constantly, day by day. Father, we bless you for the food we're going to receive. We thank you, Father, for everybody that had a hand in preparing it. We love you. We love your Son. It's through him we pray to you, Holy Father. Amen. Now we bless you. Shalom.